Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, if you've got your Bible, hold them up. Let's see them. Nothing like bringing a copy of God's Word into God's house to hear a message from God's man. And we're reminded of that great saying from Warren Wearsby, when the child of God looks into the Word of God and sees the Son of God, they are transformed by the Spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God. We'll go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1 there. And I want to tell you about a manger scene. Early on when Elizabeth and I uh, were together, I bought her a basic manger scene for Christmas. It had the manger and it had the cradle and it had baby Jesus in it along with Joseph and Mary adoringly looking down at Jesus as well as an angel above singing glory. Well, here it is. That's how it's grown over the years. That's our mantle there with our manger scene on it. What I didn't know was that I had bought the nativity scene pieces originally made famous by the Italian Fontanini family out of Bagni de Luca in Italy and he had done that as far back as 1908. And there were more pieces we could buy over the years to add to the manger scene. Each sculpted personally by hand by Elio Sonati and hand painted to boot. And they all had been given backstories and character names and so over the years we added Micah the shepherd boy holding the lamb. We added in the shepherd Jeremiah tending to his sheep and Samuel the farmer leaning on his staff. And we added in five more sheep in there because you can never have enough sheep on your manger scene, right? And then we added the three wise men with their gifts and their backstories. Melkor with his gift of gold, Gasper with his frankincense, and Balthazar with his myrrh. We added to their camels that they were sitting on, a standing camel and a sitting camel. The camel was tired after all that way. Around the manger, we added manger-type things, a donkey, a horse, and a cow. We even have a wooden goat that doesn't go with the set because it meant something to Elizabeth's family in days gone by. And so our Fontanini set has a goat that's a little out of place but still awesome because her family loves it, so we love it. In all, there's about 20 pieces in our Fontanini manger scene. And if we find out, and you guys can tell us after the service if you know, if we find out there's more pieces out there to be had that Fontanini made in the 5-inch category, there's also 7.5-inch and uh, 12 inches and things like that, but we've stuck with the scale. And if we find out there's more we can buy, we'll go out and buy them and add them in. But there's about 20 pieces. And if you have a manger scene, it probably has those same number of things in it. The reason I bring all that up is that when we think of Jesus coming to the earth as the savior of the world, when we think about Christmas time, our minds usually think of the people and the animals and the scenery around that manger, the shepherds coming day of, the wise men coming in the days after, and those things. But when the Holy Spirit had Matthew 
write his gospel, he began by adding over 40 more people to his manger scene, trailing all the way back to Abraham. In fact, the way Matthew would say it is, no, all of those came first and brought you if you followed it to the manger scene that we cherish so much. And Matthew did that to beautifully demonstrate that Jesus was indeed the promised redeemer. And additionally, that list shows us in many different ways when we think about who's in there, Eddie's alluded to it, that God truly does want to save everybody. He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. No matter what they've done, he will receive all who turn to salvation. So let's read Matthew chapter one. I'm gonna read down through verse 17. A lot of names in here. Some of them will be familiar, others less so. It says, the book of the genealogy, the book of the beginning of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezran, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of a salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abihah, and Abihah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Elikim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliad. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14. Matthew's extended manger scene. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the way that you work providentially over centuries and millennia to work your purposes and your plan. Lord, thank you so much for giving us in Matthew 1 the essential credentials we need to see that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, the famous king to come, the savior of the world, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Lord, we thank you so much for establishing it and we thank you for how people that we would have written off, you have written into your story. And Lord, there's so many examples within this list of your mercy and your grace. Help me as we choose some of them to talk about today, Lord God, to communicate how you're always at work around us and you always accept repentant sinners when they turn to you and when they turn back to you, God. Lord, we fail to see with spiritual eyes so often. We think so much about the 
physical things around us. We think about the hardships we're facing and the griefs and the this and then that. And that's as it is. We're, we're only human, Lord God. But we thank you for how with faith in you and your Holy Spirit indwelling believers, we can look with spiritual eyes at our circumstances. We can see you working in past, present, and future to bring about what you want to do through us worshiping you in our generation, serving you in our generation, God. And Lord, we thank you that your plans don't depend on any one particular generation being faithful. We're the ones that will miss the blessings of relationship with you and eternal life if we don't love you and serve you, God. But your plan will go on. It is not able to be thwarted by the powers of hell. And we thank you for how this list demonstrates that as well. Lord, bless us as we look at the text. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as we go through this passage of names, and I know some of you are already ready to check out, please don't, there's so many good things here. But we're going through Matthew and these Christmas passages here as we lead up to Christmas time. And really the author divides this into three sections. He tells us about that in verse 17. And those three sections we're going to look at today are how God was working during the days of the kinsmen from Abraham to David. And that lasted about a thousand years, that period of time. And then how God was working in the days of the kings from David to Jeconiah, which lasted about 400 years, the days of the deportation to Babylon. And then the days of the curse from Jeconiah to Jesus, which lasted about 600 years. That's the division Matthew gives us in verse 17, along with the fascinating number 14. The Old Testament definitely shows there were more than 14 plus 14 plus 14, more than 42 generations between Abraham and Jesus. But Matthew picks three sets of 14 in the actual line of Jesus to perfectly, and I love it, symmetrically, uh, illustrate that Jesus is the one who can save his people from their sins. Why the number 14 to symbolically talk about how perfect this uh, kingly lineage is of the son of David? Well, uh, I don't know, scholars talk about it. My favorite suggestion is the Hebrew numbers related to David's name. And so, in Hebrew, it's consonants, vowels were put in later, so it's D-W-D, Davud, right? And Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, fourth letter, He, Wa, sixth letter, four from uh, Daleth, twice, four plus Wa, six plus four, Daleth again, means 14. And so, that's what maybe was going on there. So, Jesus is the perfect son of David. He's the rightful king. And public records like genealogies did then what they still do now. They establish a person's identity, their heritage, their inheritance, their legal rights. And the Bible has lots of genealogical lists. And I think about how in the book of Genesis, there's 10 genealogical lists there alone before you get out of Genesis. Some of them are repeated to us here. Genealogies are especially important to establish a king's right to a throne. You've heard about imposters to the throne. And in first century Israel, they were dealing with an imposter to the throne named Herod, who didn't have any kind of legal right. In fact, he had records destroyed to show how his records would prove another heritage, not a pure Jewish heritage, but they established a king's right to the throne. Royalty depends on heredity. 
And in verses 1 through 17, Matthew establishes Jesus' human heredity. And then next week, with the great passage, verses 18 to 25, he'll establish Jesus' divine heredity. That he is the son of God who became the son of man. The son of God became the son of man. So children of men could become children of God. Isn't that neat? That's what he was doing, his purpose. Well, last time we saw that Christ was the true and better Judah. Now, that song up there didn't include that, but we could add in other things like it. And last week we looked at how Christ was the true and better Judah. What Judah was willing to do, take the place of his brother in judgment when he stood before Pharaoh's agent, Jesus actually did when he stood before and took our punishment uh, the wrath of God do sins. He took that on himself there on the cross. And so he's the line of the tribe of Judah. He's the true and better Judah. Others wrote Judah off because of his sin, but God wrote Judah into his story. And we're going to see that in many other ways as we look down through verses 3 through 17. So first we look at the days of the kinsmen in verses 2 through 6. And the names given here, I've already said, they cover a thousand years of Jewish history from roughly 2000 B.C. to 1000 B.C., including the 400 years that they were slaves in Egypt. Now, it doesn't take long to notice something unique about this list of names. Usually, these lists just give men's names like Luke's genealogy does, but Matthew adds a few ladies of note. So he breaks with tradition and lists five women in the genealogy. And he, the ones he chooses are very interesting. He could have done so many more. Almost uh, many of these uh, men's wives are known as you look through the scripture, especially in the time of the kings. He could have chosen Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and many of the king's wives uh, in that list, but he did not. Instead of including Sarah and other ladies of note, Matthew chose stories that illustrate God's mercy, his grace, his steadfast love, forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Eddie, for singing so wonderfully about it today. Stories that show he's the God of new beginnings. Now look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, the twins, by Tamar. So, Back in Genesis, we talked a little bit about it last week, how Judah had this sexual sin in his life. They had, uh, within the tribes of Israel, it was all about keeping the tribal property within the tribes. And so one way they did that, they thought, what if a man dies and he hasn't had any kids yet? How are we going to make sure the property stays within his tribe? And they said, well, here's what we'll do. If he dies... His brother will need to step right in there and go ahead and take over for what the dead brother can't do, if the oldest, and he'll be with the wife and the children that come will be that. And so Judah had given his oldest to Tamar and he died. He's a wicked man, he died. And then the, another brother stepped in, died. Another brother stepped in and died. And Judah's like, I'm tired of giving my sons to that lady. Something bad's happening and stuff, right? So... He said, when the youngest grows up, you can have him too. And the brother grew up, grew up and he didn't, wasn't faithful to his word. So you know what Tamar did? She took matters into her own hands. She was told her father-in-law was going on a little trip. I don't know if she knew of any sexual proclivity in his, in his life already that were sins, but she went ahead and she dressed up like a prostitute. He didn't recognize her, went into her, and wound up the twins, Perez and Zerah, were going to be born there terrible to think about. I mean, if, if, if I remember right, Leviticus says that uh, if you have sex with your daughter-in-law, you can be stoned to death. 
And of course, when it came time to find out that she was pregnant, they said, your daughter-in-law's pregnant. He's like, well, now I can get rid of her. We can stone her to death. And she said, well, I'm pregnant by the man who left these as a pledge. And they were Judah's stuff. And he said, well, you're more righteous than I. That's an interesting statement in that whole passage, isn't it? I mean, what a mess. What a mess. But somehow, God blessed that mess. And, and, and it continues to go through generations after that. Because turn to Ruth 4. And we're going to talk about Ruth again in a, a moment here. But so you've got the first five books, then Joshua judges Ruth. I, I wish Joshua wouldn't do that, but he's been doing it for generations now. Joshua's judging Ruth. And you go to the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is so wonderful because another one of those Leviterite marriages type happens. Boaz winds up stepping in, not as a brother, but as the closest possible relative that would be willing to be Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Kinsman is brother, blood relative, a blood relative who was willing to take up the family responsibility so everything that was lost was restored and you could continue on with God's purpose and plan for you and your tribal heritage. Really neat. But what's very interesting is that after Ruth and Boaz come together, and they're going to be married. He's so happy. He's got the right. He's got the right to be her husband, and he's earned that right to be her kinsman redeemer. He's got all the credentials, and he, his heart is to do it. It comes down, and the 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 people of Bethlehem, where this happens, give a blessing to Ruth, and you find out that Perez, the child of Judah and Tamar, through that strange relationship actually went on to found Bethlehem and these people there in Bethlehem view him as the father of it all there in Bethlehem and look what they say in verse 11 of chapter 4 then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said we are witnesses may the Lord make this woman this Ruth this Moabitess who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. God was working. In spite of Judah and Tamar's sin, God was working. Perez came into the world and he had a purpose and plan going down through the generations. And in Bethlehem later on, Ruth, a Moabitess, and there were scriptures that said a Moabite shouldn't be in among the congregational, the congregation of Israel out to the 10th generation. But when a person turns to God and receives him, all grace covers over all that stuff. So many neat things happening here. And it's worth reading since we're in another genealogical list. Go down to verse 18 in Ruth 4. Because it says, these are the generations of Perez. My goodness. What verse? I, don't, I doubt many people in here have these verses memorized. But it's just dripping with grace and another indication about how the line of Judah was going forward toward the time of the Messiah coming. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. When Ruth turned to God, God brought a blessing out of her mess. We all love back in chapter one of Ruth where she says to Naomi, I'm gonna go where you go. Your God's gonna be my God. She turned to the God of Israel. She met the savior of the world and she herself is included in the line. 
The people of Bethlehem, as they tried to process what was happening here in this mess of Ruth and Ruth's life and now her inclusion in the people of God, they go all the way back to that messy story of Judah and Tamar. And they said, just as God was working then, he's working now. And we hope the blessing in your future is just like how that wound up being blessed. He can do it for you as well. With God, it's not where you came from, it's where he's taking you to. So you say, Danny, you don't know what I've done, you don't know where I've been. And praise the Lord, I don't need to because I know what Christ did for you and I know about the praise he's preparing for you and for me. Don't you ever give up on God's plan for your life. Don't you ever give up on turning to him or back to him, getting your sins forgiven and, it's, and knowing what he has for you in the now and the hereafter. Well, look at verse five back in Matthew one. It says there, Sam and the father of Boaz by Rahab. Sam and the father of Boaz by Rahab. This is another ancient story going back to Joshua 2 and 6. So the people of Israel were going into the promised land after their 40 years wandering in the desert after coming out of Egypt. They could have been in in two weeks, but their disobedience cost them 40 years. Sin has consequences, but God can still work. And so eventually they went into the promised land and they sent spies into Jericho in advance of taking Jericho. And there some spies, now I don't know why they were at a prostitute's place, but spies somehow connected up with Rahab there and she told them, we've all heard about how great God is. Everybody here is petrified and it's obvious she's thinking about Yahweh and, she's, and they say, listen, we'll make a deal with you. If you hide us from the king's bad guys coming to us, then when we come back and take this place, we'll be good to you. Just put a scarlet cord, a red cord, a bloody red scarlet cord in your uh, window. And when we see, we'll know that your house is to survive, that we're to keep you alive. And that's what happened. Rahab turned to God. They helped her out when they came. And she wound up meeting a good Jewish boy and marrying him. Uh, and they became the Salmon and Boaz that you read about here. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, another thing about Rahab her living in Jericho before Israel went in, that meant she was a Canaanite. A Canaanite. Remember all the way back that Ham's line was cursed through Canaan? Not the rest of Ham's, not the African descendants of Ham, the ones in the land, the Canaanites. They were cursed. And they were the people who Israel was to dispossess. And yet, here's Rahab, the Canaanite, turning to the Lord, being fully received into the people of God. And Canaanite blood, blood from Ham mixing with Jewish blood mixing with the blood of Shem, the Semitic peoples and those things because God truly wants to be, have heaven represented from people with every background. After she turned to God in faith, all she got from God was blessing and a new identity as a grandmom of David and Jesus. And the same was true for Ruth the Moabite. Hebrews 11.31 says this of Rahab. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. How did it happen to her? By faith. Faith's always the key. All the way back to the days of Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Robbie Von Eime believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Edna Barber believed God and it was counted to her as righteousness. Now, I don't want to leave verse 5 without talking again about Boaz and his, uh, why he was able to redeem Ruth. All the way back in Leviticus 25, there was this law of the kinsman redeemer. To be a kinsman redeemer, 
you had to be related by blood to the one that needed redeeming. You also had to want to do it, the desire to do it. And the book of Ruth is the most beautiful picture of one of these Leverite marriages coming to pass. And uh, Boaz actually wanted, but he had to make sure the closer one didn't want to get into this situation, and so he did. And he became the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Heard a great chapel message at Bryan College once upon a time by a guy that was the maintenance fellow on the grounds. And he had done a lot of studying about it. And he said, you know what, I think you know, we don't oftentimes talk about how Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, but I think this was one of the main pictures God was putting to the Old Testament because what Boaz was able to do for Ruth is what Jesus desires to do for us all. That's why he left heaven, took on flesh and blood so he could share blood with humans, making him able to shed his perfect blood for our sinful selves with our uh, polluted blood, so to speak, right? Isn't that great? He's the ultimate kinsman redeemer. You know what that means, Eddie? Christ the true and better Boaz. The ultimate kinsman redeemer. So just like Judah can be in that song, so could Boaz there. Able to redeem Israel and all Gentiles like Rahab and Ruth who turned to him for deliverance. So listen, the key is you turning to God. The key is you turning to God. Rahab, by faith. Ruth, your God will be my God. Some of the ones that had all the Jewish pedigree there didn't turn to God in their generation and will have to receive judgment as such. And here's these Gentiles getting in on the faith. They wanted to know God and his love and they turned to him and they found him forgiving their sins, coming into their heart and life. You know, we took six weeks going to, through Exodus 34 so you guys would get this. And if you're here today and didn't go hear those messages, you might want to go through. We looked at the six or seven names that God gives in Exodus 34. He said, here's what I want you to know, Israel, you who have just sinned with the golden calf. I want you to know my name. What's my name? The Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, loving kindness, abounding in truth, abounding in faithfulness there. A God who will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but who won't clear the guilty who don't repent. But he puts that last because he wants you to know his heart toward you is redemption. He has to judge sin if you don't repent. But if you do, if you turn to him, you'll find a savior you thought you were gonna turn to and see the judge condemn you. Instead, you'll see your savior who did everything it took as your ultimate kinsman redeemer to get back for you all that Satan had stolen and to the first time you to experience some things you've never experienced because you've always done it selfish way, Satan's way rather than God's way. Isn't that awesome? God was working during the days of the kinsmen. Well, in verses six through 11, we see that God was working during the days of the kings. So here, the ancestors listed cover about 400 years from David's reign as the first king from the tribe of Judah to reign over Israel after Saul, his reign down to the captivity in Babylon. And mentioned first in this list is the next woman mentioned. It's King David, and it mentions his uh, adultery with Bathsheba, also called Bathsheba. Notice in verse 6, the Holy Spirit calls her the wife of Uriah. It's not that her name is not important, it was. It's just that the Holy Spirit's making a point for all of us for all time. 
we're reminded that when you commit adultery, you are in sin against God. That married person you are messing with was given by God to someone else. And you getting up in the middle of that, you're committing a great, great sin against God. And so here we are centuries later, and it's the wife of Uriah, even though David and Bathsheba, after receiving God's forgiveness and grace, had an awesome relationship. Many sons came. And in God's grace, one of the ones that came from that was Solomon. But there were all kinds of consequences after that in David's life for the rest of his life. One of them that we don't oftentimes take into account is Bathsheba herself, her heritage is listed in the Old Testament. Her grandfather was David's great advisor, Ahithophel. Remember him? Some of you need to name your children that so we remember it more. Ahithophel. Granddad must have been absolutely disgusted by David and Bathsheba's relationship. You know what he did later on? He joined Absalom's rebellion against David. One of the consequences, David's frustrated relationship with his own son Absalom and others and these other things that came about later on. But God can forgive even horrible sins like adultery and murder when you confess your sin and ask him to forgive you. So here they are in the ancestry of Jesus, the rightful king of the Jews. And in Luke's genealogy, which probably traces Mary's origin all the way back, uh, at this point the line diverges David and son Solomon, David, Bathsheba, and Solomon in Matthew, David and Bathsheba, and son Nathan in Luke's gospel, followed all the way down uh, to the time of Joseph and Mary. So here they are. In 2 Samuel, David was promised by God that the future Messiah, king of Israel, would come from his descendants. So despite those great sins, David remained a man after God's own heart. He was skillfully rebuked and all the gold that was in there came back to the service, the dross was consumed, the sins were forgiven, and he did love God. And the Bible makes clear that David, during his kingship, for the most part, used his position to advance love for God. They were singing great songs, half of the Psalms written by David. They, he was raising up singers to have all kinds of great music and it was a time of joy. The borders expanded and he protected the people and he also dealt with high places and idolatry during his time as king. Now, we're in a democracy. We don't think about going and smashing up things of other religions, but in Israel, God's king had the power and authority to say, that won't happen here. Just like some of you, you're a business person and in your workplace, you can say, we're not going to curse in this place at all. I'm the boss, I sign your paycheck and I can tell you we're not going to curse in this place at all. And so you have a certain amount of leverage and it makes clear that every king after David was judged with the evaluation of how they did with David as the prototype. Did they love God like David? So sometimes it says they did right like David, sometimes it says they did not do right like David. They loved God. Others were told they were wicked. They did not do what he did. They left the high places intact. They encouraged idolatry in their midst and all those different things. All future kings were judged by the less than perfect King David. Even as we as believers say, you know what? We could never do what Jesus did, but we want to do like Jesus did while we're here. We want to love like he loved. We want to do the kind of things he would do if he was here personally. And so they were evaluated by David. From verses 6 to 11, all the kings of Judah are mentioned except for three generations between Uzziah and Jotham. 
there's an amazing story of God rescuing a child king in there, using his sister and the high priest to do it. Uh, Queen mother was a wicked woman and killed all of his brothers and things like that. They hid him in the temple till he got a little bit older and the line kept on going. So even during those three missing generations from Matthew's account, amazing things were happening. And you might uh, be tripped up here that it's saying father of. This is the ESV. The word used there can easily mean ancestor of also. So again, there's 41, 42 generations mentioned, but it easily could be 60, 70 or more if everybody was actually listed. It goes down through the legal category that way. Those kings and their families, the ones listed in verse 6 through 11 there, featured all the kinds of sinful ups and downs we see in all of our lives represented by the people in this room. Some not represented, I don't believe, but I don't know if we ever had any assassinations from those in this room, but... There's sexual sins in there, there's lying betrayals, there's political posturing, there's hate, there's violence, there's murders, there's assassinations. Some were godly kings most of their lives with just a few sinful mistakes, just like some of you have been serving God faithfully and just over the years you've done a few things that really um, you wished you hadn't. Others were godly kings who for a time were involved in the worst idolatry, even idolatry that involved child sacrifice. My goodness. They turned back before it was too late, some of them. Others were wicked kings throughout. Some were wicked kings but turned back to God before it was too late. You know, I did a study of them last year. I think I've shared it once already here. But, you know, they, they divide into about four categories, each of about 25%. There were godly kings who had godly king sons. There were godly kings who had ungodly king sons. There were ungodly kings who had ungodly king sons and there were ungodly kings who had godly king sons it's about 25 percent of each because every generation has to decide every individual generation has to decide to love and obey God but the good news is our totally faithful God kept his unconditional promises to Abraham and David to keep the line going and to bless the world through their seed the coming Messiah king isn't that good news God is faithful even when we're not. And, you know, every once in a while we, we wonder about will the tabernacle continue in the decades to come to have a place uh, in all that God's doing in the community. When you go all the way back to uh, Jerusalem on Acts 2, the church first starting, there's almost no churches that have made it all the way through. God closes doors of churches. He raises up other churches the one thing we was promised was Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't be able to prevail against it. As the church goes forward in faith and witnesses, we serve God in our generation. And I sure hope that the tabernacle continues on doing great things for the Lord for decades to come. I think this community needs the tabernacle. It needs a church giving 20% to missions and being involved every day of the year on average in some way in the community through the various community ministries we have and all the ways that we reach out. But God's work will continue on even if there's not a tabernacle. And so the challenge for us is always to be faithful and fruitful followers of Jesus Christ and to make sure we're doing now what our forefathers did before us as we go into the future. And if we are, we may still get to be a part of the harvest of souls. But don't you ever bite your fingernails because the gospel will continue on. Churches will be planted. God's on the throne. He's on the move. And even if 
people in individual generations fail him, his glory will marvelously bring to pass all that he said will come to pass. Amen? Amen. Well, God made clear to Israel that if they fell into sin and idolatry, he would eventually judge them with captivity to foreign powers who would dominate them for a long, long time. Jesus spoke of those days as the days of the Gentiles ruling over Jerusalem, which started back at the uh, Babylonian captivity and continued on and still continue on in some ways until Christ himself reigns. It happened to the northern tribes in 722 BC as they fell captive to Assyria. It happened in 597 BC to Jerusalem. It was in three waves, 606 BC, 597, 586. But Jeconiah, the next king mentioned, this transitional figure between the second list of 14 and the third list, he was taken to Babylon in 597 BC. The 400 years of Jerusalem being ruled by Davidic kings was over for now, but not forever. So that brings us beyond the days of the kinsmen and the days of the kings to the days of the curse. We're in verses 12 through 16 now. And if you look at verse 11, it says that it said Josiah, father Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And then in verse 12, it brings Jeconiah back in. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel. Well, there's some very interesting things when you look at Jeconiah. He kind of ends one list and starts the other. And we see God's grace in God's dealings with him as well. The name Jeconiah, and this is also the guy called Jehoiakim, his name means God anointed. But he was such a wicked man that Jeremiah stripped God out of his name. Jeremiah said, get God's name out of your name. And he just called him Coniah, right? He called him Coniah. And this also included a curse on the descendants of Coniah going forward. That happens in Jeremiah 22, 24. Look at what Jeremiah 22, 30 says. Thus says the Lord, write this man, Coniah, down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. And so after a three-month reign, only three months, this wicked man was brought by Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to captivity. His brother Zedekiah reigned as governor in his place, no longer kings. That was over for now. And... Uh, he went in disgrace into captivity and it was prophesied that this version of himself would be like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. This version of himself would be childless, a disgrace. Heavy stuff, isn't it? Here's my question to you. Can a person like Coniah still have a future after receiving a curse like that and God still find a way to include them in his plans? Well, the only reason I'm still a minister of the gospel is I believe the answer is yes. That for the worst person listening to this, the person that thinks God can't ever use me, you're Gollum, you're not Frodo. I believe God can turn Gollums back into Frodo's when they receive his forgiveness and the change starts. In many ways, he did it to me as a younger man. He took nothing and spoke new life into my life and it was as big a miracle as in the beginning God created the earth out of nothing. On December 16th, which was yesterday, 1984, God took sinful Danny, saved his soul and a new life was born for Jesus. And you could put your date in there. And God wasn't done with Coniah even though he was cursed and in disgrace. And you may feel like you've got a curse on you, but think about the life of Coniah for a minute. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 52, if you can find it. 
Jeremiah 52. But because of this curse, God had something to deal with in going forward with the line of David going through Jeconiah. And that was that he'll be childless, no kings from him shall sit on the throne to come. Jeremiah 52, verse 31. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, same guy, Jeconiah, King of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, hey, that's Christmas, 12th month, 25th day. Well, different, they have a different calendar. Evil Merodach, what a name, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance is given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death, as long as he lived. And then we read 1 Chronicles 3.17, and we see that God did eventually allow Jeconiah to have a son, in fact, more than one. And here in Matthew 1.12, we see Coniah with God put back in his name, and that he was the father of Sheltiel, not childless, but the father of Sheltiel. So get this, if you can, in your minds. Wrap your minds around this. In Jeremiah's first mention of Jeconiah, he's cursed, childless, and deported. In Jeremiah's second mention, years later, he's released, restored, and the father of many. Do you see God's mercy in that? I sure do. As we talked about in the Exodus 34 series there, God has a John 3.16 filter. He knows what he's going to do and take care of for sinners. So for those that turn back to him, the mercy and grace gets applied. Look again at Matthew 1, 12 there. It says that Sheltiel's son was Rubbable. That's the great governor who got the temple rebuilt in 516 BC. And after that, we have no information about the rest of the descendants of Jesus. From Abiud to Joseph's dad, Jacob. But the family must have kept the records and you can picture little Jesus being told the stories of his dad and granddad and great-granddad and great-great-granddad as it went back. During all the years from Jeconiah to Christ, think about Israel, they must have felt cursed. They must have felt that curse, right? They were under occupation. They were an occupied country. First to Babylon and then to Persia and then to Greece and then to Rome. They had various levels of citizenship's right. Some compromised with Rome and were like Zacchaeus the tax collector and had all kinds of rights. Others, not so much. And some were still in the slavery category. And that's the situation our Lord was born into. So a curse was pronounced on Jeconiah that none of his descendants would prosper sitting on the throne of David. But that's not the end of the story because of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We're going to read more about it next week. But had our Lord been the natural son of Joseph, he could not have been successful on the throne of David because of this curse. But since he came through Mary's natural lineage, he was not affected by this curse. <laughs> I like to think about it this way. Matthew's genealogy through the kings of Judah, so Jesus' legal right to rule. That would be enough to make Herod terrified because a true king with legal rights was in place and he was a fraud, an imposter put there by Rome to dominate this people that were yearning for their physical freedom. 
But Mary's line in Luke 3 shows Jesus was also descended through David's son, Nathan, ensuring the biological line is intact. When I think about that and all the technical parts of that, I hope I didn't lose you. You know what I think of? I think about our creative God and how he can make a way when there is no way. We're told that God works in mysterious ways and some of you, you just don't see how it's all gonna add up this Christmas time. How are these family situations gonna be around the dinner table? How are we gonna be able to have enough money to buy gifts for each other and you know, give to that Christmas offering and the other things too? And these are days of a lot of hardships in lots of different ways. There's still concern out there about this virus and that virus and other viruses we haven't even heard of and then the viruses getting together and doing some kind of nasty thing together to us and stuff like that. And God just rules and overrules it all for his own glory and the purposes that he has. God was still working in the days of the curse, the name of the nobody, the days of the nobodies. We don't have any information about those guys uh, in the last set, uh, those last nine names. Uh, of course, the Old Testament had been completed. It's called the silent years. And here Matthew's bursting into life saying, God's not done with Israel yet. God's not done with the human race yet. The Savior is born. And it's going to be said so well in Matthew 1 to 18 through 25, but all this was put here first so that we'd know that God's still working the days of the curse like he had been in the days of the kinsmen and the days of the kings. You may not feel like royalty this morning. Scripture says if you're a believer, you're a child of the king, you're a son or daughter of the king. You've got all kinds of inheritance rights, but you may not feel like that. You may feel more like your life's lived under a curse. But in Jesus, you have a friend who sticks closer than a brother, the ultimate kinsman redeemer. You have a king who is more concerned with you as an individual crowning him king of your life than he is about whatever Rome did with him in the first century. You have a king who was born to take the curse of your sin on himself so you could live forever. Guess what? The curse is gone in Jesus, amen? Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What does it say? By becoming a curse for us. Say that with me. By becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The law of Moses, the Old Testament law, required righteousness and we don't have it. Grace gives righteousness because Christ had more than enough for all of us. Amen? Mm. The manger scene didn't start with what we traditionally think of and get excited about. The manger scene started all the way back with Abraham. Hey, in Luke's list, it goes all the way back to Adam so that everybody can get in on this salvation in the King of Israel, Jesus Christ. All those people Leading up. If you've got a big enough, I know why we don't have the manger scene like we have it. Our fireplaces aren't big enough. But if you can find a place to put all 40 generations there and then come up here, remember that the manger keeps going this way. For the first generations of Christians who believed and faced persecution and hardship in their generation, for the next generation of Christians who believed, and the next generation, and the next generation, we don't have an, a, a fireplace big enough to put everything that's happening there from Abraham to the manger to now and what he continues to do. But God does. Bow your heads.
Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.